0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome everyone. So we're going to be finishing up Chapter 6 in uh, Jack Kornfield's book The Wise Heart. Some of you are reading along Uh, So you're welcome, if you'd like, to get a copy of the book so you can follow us. We'll be working with this book uh, probably for six more months or so at the pace we're going. And uh, for me, this is a very useful and interesting topic, Chapter 6, where he introduces, as I have written down, the title of that chapter is From the Universal to the Personal. A, a, a psychology of a paradox. And then the principle he uh, expresses in this chapter, he says, our life has universal and personal nature. Both dimensions must be respected if we are to be happy and free. So it's really about understanding the personal and the universal. And I'll just review that very quickly. And more importantly, about Understanding the integration, how they both work together, and how our tendency is to take one more seriously than the other and therefore be off balance. So, you know, an easy definition of the universal, opening up to the universal, is opening up to, it always is the present moment. You know, the personal and the universal can only exist in the present moment. So when we're opening to the universal, it isn't like somehow we transcend the present moment into some heavenly space. But it's understanding the present moment free uh, of concept. Doesn't mean there aren't concepts. It just means the mind isn't under the influence of concept or seeing the moment beyond sort of the conceptual overlay or the conceptual projections that we have. You know, so for example, if there's anything that's the universal, well then it has to exist right now, in this moment. So, you know, notice now how difficult it is for us to go beyond the personal. I'm at common ground, I'm a little tired tonight, why is it still winter? You know, all of these, you know, my knee hurts, or I'm hungry. This is, the personal arises, and it gets our attention. So it's not so easy to be here, and for the mind or the heart, to go beyond, to go beyond the influence of our personal overlay projections. But it's possible, Now, it's possible maybe in a moment during the meditation, or maybe a moment right now, and it's, it's as if both the body and the mind relaxes and, you know, we're seeing and we're hearing. But it's almost like what we're thinking and what we're seeing and what we're hearing, it's almost like the natural chatter of birds in a tree. You know, it's happening, but we're, we're not needing to do anything with that information. Like you can hear my words, sometimes we hear words and it's like we're leaning into the content, wondering what the person's going to say, wanting to really get what they're going to say. But other times we can just be in a more relaxed mode. (laughs) The image that always comes to mind is in the early 80s I decided working at a management consulting firm wasn't conducive to developing my meditation practice so... I thought becoming an elementary school teacher would be easier. <laughs> I was sadly mistaken. But I remember my first year teaching uh, second and third graders, and uh, I was so burnt out on Saturday after a week. And then, of course, I had to prepare for the next week, and I didn't know what I was doing. But I remember I'd go, I'd work hard, you know, on Saturday morning, and then I'd finally get home sometime Saturday afternoon, and I just was a total vegetable, and I was just lie down and I turn on public radio you know and there's all these sort of stupid shows on on Saturday afternoon I mean not stupid but <laughs> you know car talk and this American life and I forget what was on at that time but I wasn't really listening it was like just sort of soothing language in the background you know like bird chatter or something and just in kind of like being comforted by the play of nature in this case public radio. I was living in the Bay Area at the time in California, so it wasn't Minnesota public radio. It's probably KQED, I think, back back then or maybe still today. That's the main station. But anyway, we can have this at any point where we're not taking the physical sensations, the visual experience, the auditory experience, even the emotional experience or the thoughts. We're not thinking any of it personally. It's just the natural movement but in its way, in a, in a sense, the self, whatever that is, it becomes porous or transparent. So whatever thoughts are being thought, sights that are being seen, sounds that are being heard, sensations that are being felt, it's as if it's a, an effortless or a frictionless flow. The subject, the self, is completely porous. And so the experiences that, were, that are being known aren't meeting any kind of resistance, any kind of friction. So this is just a description, you know, and there are many ways to describe an opening to the universal. But just a description of going beyond the conceptual, going on, going beyond the definitions we have about things, how the mind turns turns things into good and bad, mine and yours, this and that. So that's getting loosened up, that fixation. And life, the present moment experience, starts to come alive. And things are seen in a very fluid, interdependent, not defined way. And there's a real sense of, excuse me, wholeness, like everything belongs. There's nothing that sort of stands out as being a part, or off, or wrong, everything. In a way, it seems like it, it all fits, it all belongs. So, when we open to the universal, the natural fruit of that kind of insider opening is this sort of resonant, this resonant insider, this resonant uh, sort of response of letting go. That's the natural fruit or the natural expression of seeing opening to the universal is the mind, the heart, let's go. Doesn't cling, doesn't grasp, doesn't create friction, resistance with whatever is being known or happening in the moment. That's how we know. It's not like I'm letting go or I'm not grasping. It's just the inevitable natural expression. So in a way, it's uh, tautological. If there is letting go that natural letting go, letting things be, then to some degree, the mind, heart, is opening to the universal. It kind of goes both ways, if that makes sense. So that's the universal. That's what I talked about last week. This week, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about the personal. So the personal is the conceptual. It is. It's totally integrated with the stories we have about things. I'm 52 years old, soon to be 53. I'm doing this. I like that. I want this to happen. I'm afraid of that. I care about you. I don't care about you. You know, all of this is on the level of the personal. And on that level of the personal, the sort of beautiful, wholesome expression of the personal is the basic wish to be skillful, right? There's nothing, like, it's not that the universal is good and the personal is bad. It's just wisdom is expressed in the universal as letting go, and wisdom is expressed in the personal as that simple, authentic wish to be skillful. And being skillful, again, it's one of those tautological definitions. Skillful just means that we're choosing, we're acting, we're relating in ways that minimize suffering, minimize stress. So when we're relating to the present moment, relating to the personal life situations that come up in our day-to-day lives, when we're relating skillfully, we're minimizing suffering for ourselves and others. And when we're relating unskillfully, we're maximizing or increasing the odds of suffering, of stress for ourselves and others. So, the expression of like a authentic, mindful relationship to the personal is this very real, distinct desire to be skillful. It's not inappropriate to desire to be skillful. You know, like sometimes we think, you know, if we're really grounded in the universal, we don't need that desire to be skillful. But actually, that's what wisdom looks like on a personal level. This beautiful, wholesome desire to be skillful as a way of taking care of myself and others. So it's it's really a universal wish. It's not just about taking care of myself, but it's about not harming anybody. And this life is the most proximate life that I'm concerned about because it's right here. It's not that I care more about myself than others, it's just that this mind and body is proximate, so obviously the responsibility is higher for this life, you know. And then maybe our kids or loved ones, you know. And then out from there. So it's not so much that we we weigh our existence above another. It's just that it gets our attention because it's right here. Our existence is right here. So the desire to be skillful. First and foremost, is going to be expressed as we take care of this body and mind, and then outward from there. So sometimes people feel like, you know, they don't trust spiritual practice or they don't trust this practice because it's like uh, they're afraid they're, they're going to n- neglect themselves. But on a personal level, what begins to manifest is this very real, very resonant, wholesome, beautiful desire take care of ourselves and all beings to be skillful to be sk- and and it's really base it's grounded in this insight that what we think and say and do matters it doesn't mean it's not a deluded <coughs> point of view that I can somehow control everything so just because we're we have the desire to be skillful doesn't mean we have the delusion that we can control outcomes you see, there's maybe, maybe you don't get, it, get that, but there's a real distinction. We can have a very beautiful, strong, resonant desire to be skillful, and at the same time completely understand that we're not in charge of outcomes. Things are going to unfold as they're going to unfold. We can know that what I'm thinking, what I'm saying, and what I'm doing has effects without being confused that those effects are always going to be the determining factor in terms of how things unfold. But it doesn't mean it's not important. It is important because it's the only way we can act on our wish to take care of everybody, including ourselves. You see? Does that make sense? So this is the... You know this is really the integration of the universal and the personal because the way that the insight into the universal informs the personal is that it reminds us that we do have this right to be engaged we do have this right to care about this life and about all lives about minimizing suffering or stress but we don't have rights to expectations like things should turn out this way so just because I'm trying, doing my best, because I care, out of compassion, to live a skillful life and to set in motion happiness and ease for myself and others, doesn't mean that's what's going to happen. But 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 it's a beautiful thing to care. That itself is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to act on that compassion. And If a positive, wholesome effect can be made, we've done what can be done. So, in a way, we can rest knowing that our intention was good, we acted on that wholesome intention, whatever could be done was done. I mean, given as much wisdom as there was there in that moment, it was there, the heart saw, knew it, acted on it, and then there's a kind of contentment that... Whatever could be done was done. And then this is where the universal really informs the personal. And now, whatever arises in the next moment, that's how it is. Because although I'm doing my best to be skillful, I'm not in control of all, of all the way it unfolds. So now it's like this. And my desire to be skillful is still my desire to be skillful. That hasn't changed. And now the question is, how to act on this desire to be skillful, to minimize suffering for myself and others? And again, we act. We say something, we do something, we think something. And that has an effect. And that effect, coming out of a wholesome intention, modifies how things unfold to some degree. Sometimes it makes a really big difference how things unfold. Sometimes it has a minimal effect because what really is shaping how things unfolding has to do with the weather or has to do with somebody else's confusion or whatever. It has very little to do with our wholesome intention to minimize suffering for ourselves and others. But that's all we can do on the personal level. So this is the real art of living on the personal level is this willingness to completely submit to this limited sort of playing field i guess that we have as a human being on this personal level all we have is this moment and the quality the sort of beauty of our intentions in this moment in the buddhist studies class on monday night i i shared a little bit of uh, the buddhist teachings on Sankara, the mental formations. How we have these latent tendencies. I guess you could say, like our subconscious, conscious uh, dispositions or compulsions, tendencies. And then, in any one moment, given the present moment, given the present conditions, some of those dispositions rise up and they present themselves in the mind as an intention. Right? Like you could act in a particular way right now that might draw out of my latent tendencies a kind of defensiveness you know i have that capacity that tendency to be really defensive if certain conditions arise i have a tendency to be really sweet if other conditions arise you know and it's probably the same for all of us we have you know our strong tendencies our strong dispositions and it and what particular disposition arises depends on what's going on around us, what we're thinking, what we're seeing, things like that. And then, like I said, so then a particular disposition manifests as a, a presenting intention in the mind. Like, oh, I have this intention, this about to do something, this wanting to act. And when we identify with that intention, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Like we take that, that intention in the mind personally or we recognize it as being wholesome, and we give permission for it to manifest in terms of our thoughts, or our words, or our actions, then it, in a sense it surges forward into action. So our job on the personal level is to become familiar with the dispositions, with the particular intentions that arise in each moment, and the tendency of those intentions to surge into action. And all of this awareness of the dispositions, the intention, the surging movement into action, all of that should be understood through the lens of karma. Karma, the law of karma, the law of cause and effect, means that, like the heart, it cares. I care about this life, I care about all lives. I understand that just as you know, as I have experienced my own suffering, my own stress and really felt the sting or the weight or the confusion of suffering, you know, each of us each in our own way we've experienced that. We know what that weight, that sting is like and just as I know that I'm vulnerable to that, I'm susceptible to that I know that it's true for everybody here, right? And everybody I can imagine, you know, we're all susceptible to that. So just as I want to avoid that, I know you guys want to avoid that experience of sadness and disappointment and all the different ways, the multitude of different ways the heart hurts. And so when I, you know, to that basic human psychological instinct to protect myself, I know that that's what's operating in you so we begin to like be moved by not harming and we're combining that with this insight on the personal level insight manifests as the understanding this is like a, aha the understanding that what i think what i say what i do matters the quality of this disposition manifesting it as an intention and then into action that that flow from the disposition into the action it matters it's the only sort of way I can affect or participate or express the compassion I have for this life and then by extension all lives that's the only place we get to participate It seems like there's a lot more options for us. But when you look at it honestly and carefully, you see that it always comes down to a particular moment, one moment, right? It's only life exists moment by moment. So we have to reduce it to that. And the only way that we have to participate in this moment is there are many dispositions.
0: And in any moment,
1: Many of those, maybe not all, but many of those particular latent tendencies we have are actually presenting themselves as, I guess we could say, options in the mind, right? Like even right now, you could have different intentions arising, like the intention to go to sleep, the intention to run off and become a nun or a monk. You know, you could have different intentions sort of popping, arising, presenting themselves in your mind. And then play is we're meeting we're relating to those are presenting intentions with compassion like the, 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 the uh, insight that suffering is a possibility for me and for others I care about that and meeting it with compassion and with the insight that and the particular intention that I allow to get expressed as thought, word, or deed, matters. So it's the compassion then that's conditioning. And compassion is not different than wisdom. It's the compassion and the understanding of karma that it matters what intention I get identified with and allow to get expressed as thought, words, and actions. It matters. So the um, wisdom and compassion... Then condition our response in that moment. This is where we have control. We don't actually have control, uh, certainly not complete control, on the sort of what latent tendencies get triggered. You know, because, you know, like if a cougar or a pack of, coug- I guess they don't go in packs, how about a pack of wolves? I was up at the Arrow River Forest Hermitage a couple weeks ago, and a week or so before, a pack of wolves took out either a a moose or a deer. By the time the people at the hermitage got down to the river the next day, and it happened very close to one of the cabins there, uh, all the parts were gone of the moose or the deer. Not just the wolves, but all the other animals had kind of gotten there and pulled away whatever they could. So just the blood and the... Footprints were left. So if a pack of wolves came in this room, you know, you know, we we don't we're not going to be in control of the particular dispositions that get activated, you know, that primal fear. And uh, so when that primal fear gets activated, it may make a lot of sense to sort of like push the other person <laughs> toward the woes as we go the other direction or something like that. All kinds of intentions will arise in the mind. You know? Like a a noble intention, like maybe to step forward and to be the shield and protect other people. Or, you know, the other intention to sort of run and you know, not be so concerned about everybody else. But a lot of different things would arise in our mind immediately. And then the question is, uh, we don't have, like, does anybody have any control of all those different dispositions that get activated and present themselves in the mind? At that point, we don't have any control. Now we have a moment of participation. So there are these different dispositions that are now manifesting as intentions in the mind. Now we have. The possibility of being one, of being either aware that there are intentions in the mind, differing intent. See, if we're not, a, if we're not mindful in that moment, whatever intention is the strongest, the sort of most vibrant, we're just going to get identified with it and do it, act it out. That's what happens to human beings when they're not mindful. There's no choice. We're literally a lot like robots. So there's a moment of experience which triggers, activates certain latent tendencies. They present themselves in the mind. Whatever the glossiest, shiniest, brightest one is, the mind sees it, gets identified with it, follows it into action. And then there's another moment of experience. It triggers latent tendencies, which manifests as intentions. The strongest one gets identified with, acted on. And that's very much sort of like an automatic pilot. That's why we so often repeat patterns over and over again. Even if in moments we realize that's a destructive pattern. I should never date a person like that again. Or you know, why do I react to my boss in the same way? It's so unproductive. Yet the next day, the same thing happens. We react in the same way and get the same consequences. And it's because we're not mindful. So when the boss does something, we're not aware of those different possibilities. We're only seeing the brightest one, the biggest one, the one that's been practiced most often. So we tend to repeat things. And then when we repeat them, we're more likely to repeat it next time, because we've brightened it, strengthened that particular tendency by acting on it. That's how we create these different patterns or grooves. So when the wolves come in, whatever's presenting itself is simply the result of what we've done in the past in similar like situations, whether you buy into multi- multiple lifetimes, so through endless number of lifetimes, when something threatening has walked in the room, you know whatever we've done tended to do, they're going to be the bright intentions. Now, just because it's something we've tended to do over and over again doesn't mean it's the wise thing to do, right? So the the power of mindfulness is then we see the different possibilities we see the easy pathway the one that's got the deep groove we see the other pathways like you know whatever they might be like not following the addictive pattern to drink or to you know think of ourselves as the only thing that matters so we we see the different possibilities and and in this space of wisdom then it gets uh, affected by compassion and by the understanding that the intention we choose to follow to choose to allow to be expressed into action that colors the future that's how we participate that's actually how we engage life with wisdom and and compassion is by we're basically creating the future by having moments of mindfulness where we see different possibilities and we choose one possibility and refrain from another and moment by moment we can do that and therefore moment by moment on a personal level we can shape life the life that's unfolding we're not in control of what's unfolding, but we can shape the grooves or the tendencies. So instead of always responding with fear, we can shape it slowly to respond with compassion. Instead of always responding from a self-centered point of view, we can sp- respond more and more from a universal point of view. Hey, what about all of us banding together and charging the wolves? You know. Maybe if they see 60 people running at them, they'll feel outnumbered, you know, and run out of the room. And you open the door. (laughs) You know, so that kind of uh, response—it's not going to be the most practiced response. It's not going to be the big, bright response. But if the mind has that moment of wisdom where it's seeing the possibilities. And each of the possibilities, if we really see them in a way we're tasting them, we're we're getting a sense that this is a tight, self-centered, narrow tendency. If I take that up, I am creating a future of tightness and narrowness and heaviness, fear-based. Right? If we notice another tendency arising as an intention in the mind, like to work together, let's say, and we notice the flavor of that. It's like we're tasting that intention. And that has the flavor of love and belonging and, and working together. You know, the, and that has a different quality. Because this first one, you know, it's based that you know, nothing is more important than survival. Now, imagine if we really lis- listened just to that intention our whole life. We could justify anything. People, so many times, so many ways, create deeply miserable existences following the intention that nothing matters but my survival. I mean, just think about... When we think about despots, they're just ordinary people with a lot of power. And so that basic... Tendency that we all have because of our our animal instincts, you know part of being an animal to some degree is To be either individually based or clan based, you know Creatures that share my genes Then they're on the inside and everybody else is on the outside. I mean, that's kind of the animal nature and so um, You know, when I'm acting on that, then it's really okay to destroy everything else if it prolongs or leads to my continuation. So we can justify terrible sort of injustices. And the thing is, from this deeper point of view, it doesn't lead to happiness. It leads to fear. Because we've reinforced that nothing matters but my survival. And that intention is tight. But see, we won't know that if we're a robot. We only understand that that's not what we want if we're mindful. And we're mindful of intention in the mind. So this is the whole world of the personal. Now, from the universal perspective, these intentions, these dispositions, these actions, it's just... Impersonal conditions coming and going, right? Just like uh, Menendeeji, this uh, well-known teacher of Joseph Goldstein and many other of the early Western teachers, you know, he had this phrase that he would use evidently quite often. Empty phenomena rolling on. To describe insight into the universal. Empty phenomena rolling on. But from a personal point of view, from the personal side of practice, we want to be very respectful of this process of an experience being known, latent tendencies being activated, arising in the mind as intention, seeing some of those intentions are coming from a dark or a self-centered place, other intentions may be less bright, less strong, are coming from a more Beautiful intention, or a more beautiful place—a place of love, a place of patience, a place of like a, a broader, deeper perspective. Not you know short term versus long term, self centered versus universal. And it makes and then if we act on those kind of intentions, we start to uproot that tight, narrow, fear-based way of being on a personal level. So it doesn't mean that we're not going to be attacked by wolves down the road. But what it means is for as long as we're alive, fear will be less and less dominant in the mind. And love and ease and a sense of safety the safety of not being afflicted by fear will be more dominant in the mind. As a as a human being, on a personal level, we don't have a lot of control over so many causes and conditions, but we do have very real influence on the mind that's going to respond to the personal conditions that we don't have a lot of control over. We can go through life reinforcing and meeting life with a very narrow, fear-based focus. Or we can meet the different conditions that come our way with a really uh, broad, deep, love-based, compassion-based perspective. And that's really the the sort of work uh, on the personal level of the spiritual path. And they both inform each other. It's like the universal is what allows us to get close, like to do that job, the personal work, you know, of noticing, like, okay, I'm having this experience. The wolves are coming in. And all of these latent tendencies are getting triggered, you know, like raw terror, you know, the sort of blind instinct to run, fight or flight. You know, I don't want to fight. I'm running. (laughs) Um, And then some other maybe more wholesome, like, heck, we're all in this together. If we all run, we're not only, a lot of us are going to get trapped, but we're going to end up hurting each other as we climb over each other to get out of the room first or to go out the other door or out the window. So, you know, we have that moment of choice about whether we want to um, follow the fear based or reinforce something more wholesome. But what gives us that possibility is being relaxed. That's that's how the universal allows for really good personal work. is because we're less tight. If if we don't have any universal influence in the present moment, then we're already totally fear-based. And so part of being afraid is we just want something to do. So whatever intention arises bright and clear, we're just going to act on it. We're not going to be reflective at all, right? You know how that is. Like when we're in shock or when we're overwhelmed by a lot of pain in life, we tend to just do and what we're programmed to do. We're not, we tend not to be very reflective because in order to be reflective, we have to be feeling what we're feeling. We have to be relaxed and undefended. And the universal allows us to be relaxed and undefended because it understands to some degree... It's just empty conditions coming and going. It has a spacious uh, relationship to phenomena. And that allows us to be relaxed. That allows us to see there are many possible intentions to act out in any moment. We don't have to act out the strongest one. That creates choice where there wouldn't otherwise be choice. And the personal really supports the universal because Without this understanding of wanting to be skillful, wanting to take care of all beings, ourselves and others, without that um, that perspective, this, this sort of strong drive to be skillful, to not harm, then we can use, otherwise we can use the universal just to check out. It becomes sort of like, well, heck, life the personal is messy. I'm just going to check out, and and whether we do it actually by go running into some cave, or disconnecting from our friends and family, because they're stupid and ignorant and don't really get it, and you know so let them suffer. That sort of uh, it's really aversion, isn't it? You know it's kind of a aversion, and it's the opposite of love it's the opposite of being connected of actually being able to ground into the present moment so the universal will get corrupted without the influence of the personal this this connection that what we think and do and say it matters and that the the you know the way they express the universal is by bringing it into Ordinary moments, like wolves running <laughs> into the common meditation center or having to feed ourselves or, you know, deciding, you know, when you meet a car at an intersection, who's going to go first. You know, all these sort of ordinary moments that we have in our lives. So maybe I'll leave it here. We have 15 minutes left. It would be nice to hear from people. Just your own experience about integrating the universal and the personal questions or comments, uh, experiences about uh, seeing the different dispositions arising as intention, getting acted, recognizing wholesome and unwholesome in that moment, what gets in the way, what allows that to happen. So what comes to mind? And it's always good to say your name if you decide to speak up. So any thoughts people have? Yeah, Kevin.
2: Um, Yeah. I thought to a little last week after, uh, after the sit. And I've been kind of just talking about this for like eight years or something. I'm a writer. And, um, I have a lot of trouble uh, getting started, and, uh, you know, being real uh, productive. And um, so that yeah, is a lot of fear based I just wanted to see if there's a way um, you could talk a little bit about that, or, or I could explain a little more to you. Um, and it, it's getting better. I'm noticing a lot more of the fear, and I'm able to uh, you know, change some of those intentions uh, before I kind of distract myself um, from what I'm supposed to be doing. I was wondering if you, could, if you could try
1: to apply that to this universal personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when conditions are good, you know, and <clears throat> the particular things that are causing anxiety, like your work, is not right in front of you. You know, you're home later, you're at common ground. And, uh, yeah, and you're, you're feeling relatively safe the body and mind is relatively easeful, then we take advantage of those relatively safe and simple times to open to the universal. Because it's relatively easy. Like, you know, I'm sitting at home feeling exhausted from my days as an elementary school teacher, like I described, you know, back in the early eighties. And uh, I could get a little relief. I was just starting to, you know, be a, a real serious practitioner back then, and I, I could get a little relief from all the anxiety, all of the aversion, all of the, you know, personal problems I had as an, a first-year elementary school teacher, by just sort of letting the chatter of public radio and uh, sensations of exhaustion and just letting it all move there, lying on my couch uh, for hours, you know, into the evening until I went to sleep. <laughs> and But it was kind of a, a relatively safe time, as opposed to, you know, being in front of kids and not knowing what I'm doing. You know, when it wouldn't be so easy to open to the universal, where I'm realizing because... I've got some distance. I'm realizing that the different memories about having done something stupid with the children, or fears about not knowing what I'm going to do, and fears about what the parents think about me, and you know, just letting all that stuff move as sort of more or less impersonal phenomena. Oh, there's that fear. Oh, there's that thought. Or oh, there's that memory. And just letting things ventilate the emotion, the content. The sensations in the body just letting it all move and then it's just like uh, uh, kind of an opening to the universal where the mind is knowing that stuff more in terms of its movement and its impersonal nature and that any identification is suffering none of it not identification is freedom so that's at the level of the universal I'm experiencing my life because uh, on a more universal level, because more than the particular content of that thought or the particular feeling of that emotion is its movement, that it's just like this ventilation or just this stream of content, emotion, flowing, flowing, moving, moving, sensation. And the mind's not taking a hold of it, not identifying with it. And, And it learns a deep, universal lesson. Whenever it does grab a hold of the content, or the emotion, take it personally, immediately we're a suffering human being. And as soon as there's just the movement, the ventilation, it feels relatively okay again for a while. So like in your experience, when you can, when you're on retreat, when you're sitting, doing your daily sit, when you have a little bit more space from the work, then take the time to be reflective of the body, the emotion, the mental content, from the point of view of the universal. So you're really tuning in to the impersonal nature of that movement of content, movement of emotion, movement of sensation. You're really aware of the movement, anicca, and the impersonal nature, anatta. And dukkha, whenever there's any kind of identification, there's friction, it hurts. When there's no identification, it doesn't hurt. So and a lot of the time there's going to be a residual of identification, and there will be a residual of hurt, of some weight to it, like some dread of having to go back and do that project, or whatever. But we're, we're specifically not dealing with the question of skill. Like, how can I skillfully negotiate this project? Or how sh- can I skillfully negotiate this life? Should I quit this job? Or not should I change professions or not what would be a good technique to use to be more motivated to do my work that's all on the level of personal we're specifically not letting that enter in that's part of the flow that thought like how could I be more skillful that's just a thought you know that's just the next thought I'll never be more skillful that's the next thought for I really want to be skillful. I really want to that's the next thought so we're not actually Giving personal meaning to the thoughts that are arising But we're just aware of the movement of thought The impersonal conditional nature Like there's no center to that movement It's just stuff happening And that when there's any grasping, it hurts And then the more we do that Then when we're back in the middle of it And we're living in the personal realm now and at this point, to some degree, we have choices to make. We have to try to be skillful with the work in front of us. Then the work we did when it was safe helps us be a little bit more a little bit more equanimous, a little bit more spacious, so that as we sit down there and the anxiety arises, there's some carryover from the insight we had with that universal work. Where when that anxiety arises, there's some a, like a, another dimension or a sense of space. Well, it's just anxiety, and there's this and there's this other intention, like to care about the anxiety, you know, or you know a sense of humor about, oh yeah, I know you, you know, been there, done that. So there are many different intentions when you sit down there, and one intention may be to want to go read news on the internet. You know, and one intention might be to sort of be that sort of strict parent. You know, go to work. <laughs> you know, I don't care how much it hurts. You're going to do this. You know, and there may be 20 different intentions, but there may be one you haven't explored. You know, it's like some of them you recognize as being clearly not going to help. Others, you know, like hey, you know, I've done that so many times, and it doesn't work. And so you might just creatively explore some of the other intentions. Trial and error. And basically, you're you're discovering through trial and error what intentions actually lead to positive results. And that realm, that, that capacity to be creative, creative in what you do, creative in how you relate, what allows for that creativity is the space that's coming from your work on the universal level. And then, of course, the more that we're successful on the personal level, and we're able to manage our personal intimate relationships with more skill, we're able to uh, manage our livelihood with more skill, manage to take care of our body with more skill, Then we're going to have more and more moments where we feel safe. And in those moments where we feel safe, we're going to do the universal practice of just seeing things come and go and really noticing the fluidity, the ephemeral nature of the flow of thought, of sensation, of sight, the impersonal nature. That dukkha arises when we grasp it, and there's freedom arises when we don't grasp it. And that will bring more space to the personal. You see, so they're really feeding each other. It's not one better than the other. And so it's just a question of where to begin. And the answer to that is when you feel safe, orient towards the universal. Because it's it's harder to find opportunities to open to the universal. Somebody who's in a lot of poverty, in a war zone, you know, things like that, they're not going to have too many opportunities to practice opening to the universal because they're more on that beastly level of survival. And it's just a great tragedy. And so to whatever degree we're fortunate enough to have moments, times of relative safety, then we really want to take advantage of it to be in this more reflective mode where we're practicing, not focusing on the personal. So this is why the technique like mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of the body is so potent, because it helps us learn how to let go of the personal level, the level of the story, and to attend to something ordinary or neutral, like the sensations of the breath going in and out, or predominant sensations in the body. And see, already, if we can do that, we've taken a huge step toward the universal. It doesn't seem like it's universal. I mean, I'm just feeling the touching at the nostrils, just feeling the predominant sensations wherever they are in the body. But what, what allows that to be an opening to the universal isn't about what we're paying attention to. It's that we've dropped the addiction, the sort of fixation on our thoughts and emotions and taking them personally. Because you can't really be intimate with the breath and obsessed with emotion or thought. So to be really fully there with an in-breath means we've dropped the personal for a while. And we begin to open to the universal, the movement. So even with the breath, see the universal is everywhere. You can discover the universal with the breath, with hearing, with any particular object. It's just noticing the, the flow, the ephemeral movement of the breath. This is very accessible. This is not years away. In anybody's practice, there will be moments when, for just one half of one in-breath, the, the balance of mind is there. And what is really being known is that ephemeral movement of the breath, the impersonal movement of the breath. Nobody's doing the breath. It's just the breath coming in. And then whenever the mind tries to control it, it all of a sudden gets heavy and stressful. And when the mind isn't trying to manage or control it at all, It's beautiful. It's a beautiful expression of freedom. Right there, in just an ordinary half of an in-breath, we can open to the universal in a very deep way that will change forever. One little insight into the universal changes forever how we relate to the personal. So in little glimpses like that, over and over again, our relationship to the personal becomes transformed. And then when that happens, like I said, we, we just end up being more skillful on the personal level. And that allows, depending on the conditions of our lives, more safety. That's the result of being skillful on the personal, is life just works a little bit better than it would otherwise. Right? We're just, our relationships work better, livelihood works a little better. Given the, you know, we're not in control of everything, but given how the other conditions are, it will work better than it would if we didn't have that spacious relationship with the personal. We wouldn't be a skillful. A little bit more time, maybe time for one more comment. Yeah.
0: Um, this is, my name's James. Uh, it's kind of a question of time. Sometimes I think I'd be better at dealing with the wolves walking into the room than confronting my um, Overly non confrontational passive roommates about some issue that's coming up in the household, or um, I'm left with a lot of time in my day that I wouldn't normally have. Do I play my guitar, do my laundry, um, clean my room, read book? So it's like when the external day to day stuff presents a whole lot more options, the game becomes a lot more difficult for me. Yeah. Uh, whereas As things get ratcheted up a little bit more, I get two to three or four choices, and maybe I get to think about one more, but um, I don't know. So it's almost a little bit inverse, finding myself in the middle of those moments where it's just like I'm losing the reflective state or the ability to see options because there are so many.
1: uh, Because there's so many, and probably because. Because that we misunderstand the skillfulness. Because the skill isn't so much the particular choice you make to play the guitar, to read the book, to do the laundry. The skill might be more about um, the motivation that leads you to do the laundry or leads you to play the guitar. So that's what's really important. So for example, you might have only one choice You know, you're in prison. You don't have anything to do but this one thing, you know, walk back and forth. And so then the question, you still have a multitude of intentions. I can walk back and forth angry. I can walk back and forth with the intention to just space out, you know. I can walk back and forth to care about all beings. You know, so you can have a multitude of intentions, and they're all going to set in motion different kinds of futures. So what really matters isn't so much what you do, but the kind of future you're setting in motion, depending on that, the quality of that intention. And so without a lot of insight into the the universal, we think the particular choice matters. Guitar, book, cleaning, laundry. But the more we understand the universal, the more it isn't so much about what we do, about how we do it, or the, the 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 kind of mind, and therefore by extension world, we're setting in motion. So it's like that. It's really I know it sounds a little bit grandiose to say, but it's really about saving all beings, or protecting, or loving all beings. We're we're literally shaping the world moment by moment by the quality of the intention that is being acted on. And is it a tight, narrow intention? Or is it an expansive, inclusive intention? And so that's really. And so th- I think the issue is when it's something big, like wolves attacking, it's sort of. W- we somehow feel like it matters, so we show up in a way. So what you might want to uh, highlight is like feeling motivated to really see the possibility of doing something beautiful, meaningful in the moment. And it isn't about like getting it right, like doing the guitar. But if you do the guitar, doing it in a way that's really beautiful and expansive. Or if you do the laundry, doing it in a way that's really beautiful and expansive. Not like, oh I've got to do it, I might as well do it now. But but how to make the actions, the words, the thoughts that we engage in something that is itself satisfying and beautiful not on the way like oh now I got my laundry done so now I can be happy but the choice itself the thoughts and actions itself they're beautiful they're coming from a really beautiful expansive way or place you know like this you know we can look at it from one way one angle and we can think it so silly like Thich Nhat Hanh has these different phrases they're called Gattas in that Zen tradition and you know you know Washing dishes, I vow to save all beings. Or washing the dishes, you know, I clean this heart and all hearts of the defilement. I mean, you hear these things and you just kind of want to vomit or something. (laughs) But the actual intention, if you can really find that way of doing the dishes so the heart is in that expansive place, and it isn't about just getting the dishes done so I can get on to the next thing, then it really is itself... Uh, Satisfying and that isn't like on the way. It's like already beautiful. So we're expressing Freedom and love and all anything that's beautiful right then and there and that's really the the level to kind of Like if you bring if you really thought Everything you ever wanted was right there in this choice you'd really show up and That's the big problem with the personal. We don't think this particular moment is worthy of showing up That's called delusion, like a lot of people get aversion and we get what greed is, but we don't really know what the Buddha means by delusion. It's this idea that this moment doesn't really matter, so I don't really have to show up. That's called delusion, (laughs) because it ends up being then, it it becomes our habit. Well then if that moment doesn't matter, then this moment doesn't matter, and pretty soon Almost all the moments don't matter. And only moments that matter are when the wolves run into the room. But those moments don't happen very often, you know. So mostly we, can, uh, we are willing to be an automatic pilot, you know. And then the trouble is then when the wolves do run into the room, we're so in the habit of being an automatic pilot, we're going to be an automatic pilot in that moment too. Because that's all we've ever done. But we we're a little bit over. sorry about that. Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words.